0: Islam has no exit door. Indeed, the religion of Allah does not take kindly to those who become, quote, apostates and decide to leave. Doing so may cost you dearly. Example, today's guest narrowly escaped a firebombing from his own father. We'll hear his story and much more on the land and the book. Welcome. Our host is author and Israel expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, I see you've got your hiking boots on today. We're heading up uh, Mount Moriah later on. Is that the plan?
1: That's exactly right. We're starting a new seven-part series on uh, the mountaintop experiences of the Bible. So Mount Moriah is number one. Looking forward to that. And now a question. Do you know that
0: most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? And of course, each week we talk about Israel and the Jewish people here on the land and the book. It's important to remember, though, that
1: they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. Life in Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life in Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Now, Life in Messiah is offering a free gift to moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Thanks, Charlie.
0: Okay, let's uh, swing our focus now to our coverage of news events from the Middle East. First, one quick correction from last week, Charlie.
1: Yeah, that's right, John. We talked about the curse tablet discovered on Mount Gerizim, which was an error. The, The tablet and altar were actually found on Mount Ebal, which was the mountain of cursing. We knew that, but we just kept saying the wrong thing. And it reminds me, John, while the Bible is inerrant, we're not.
0: Okay. Well, let's take a look at this week's headlines from the Middle East. Israel has survived Passover without experiencing a major terrorist attack though we still have more than a week to go before the end of Ramadan. What steps did Israel take to help keep tensions in
1: check? Well, you know, ultimately it was the hand of God that kept the situation so quiet. No matter what a government tries to do, they don't have the ability by themselves to stop terrorist attacks, especially when the attacks are carried out by so-called lone wolf attackers who aren't part of a known terrorist cell. Uh, Terrorist attacks in recent weeks had already killed 14 and the fear was that the confluence of the Muslim and Jewish religious holidays would heighten tensions even more. As a result, Israel tried to stop terrorists before they could launch attacks. They increased their security presence in Jerusalem and across the West Bank. Uh, They arrested uh, individuals suspected of planning major terrorist attacks on Passover and unfortunately a number of Palestinians were killed in clashes with Israeli soldiers. They also closed off access to Jewish areas from the West Bank for Passover and arrested six members of a large Jewish group that were encouraging Jews to smuggle a goat onto the Temple Mount to sacrifice it for Passover. A clash also broke out on the Temple Mount between security forces and Muslim worshippers the Friday of Passover when Muslims threw rocks onto the Western Wall Plaza below. Police entered the area to disperse the rioters and detained about 400. Clashes on the Temple Mount then continued for several days, drawing condemnation from surrounding Muslim countries. Now, those clashes also threatened the shaky coalition government, with the Islamist Ra'am Party suspending cooperation and saying they would leave the coalition if Israel crossed its red lines on the issue. But thankfully, no additional people were killed in those riots on the Temple Mount, and hopefully it will all start settling down again now that Passover is over. Charlie, did I hear you say there were 400 uh, people detained or arrested? There were. Now, Israel released a number of them, uh, but they were the ones who were initially throwing stones and rioting against the police on the Temple Mount. Israel
0: announced that it has successfully tested its Iron Beam system, a complement to the Iron Dome defensive system. So what exactly is Iron Beam, and when will it be
1: fully operational? Well, the Iron Beam system is a Star Wars-like laser weapon that can shoot missiles, mortars, and unmanned aerial drones out of the sky. Israel took a major step forward with this successful test of the system, using it to shoot down all three types of weapons. The test actually took place in the southern Negev Desert. What makes the system, though, such a game-changer is the cost. Iron Dome has proven to be successful, but each interceptor missile costs tens of thousands of dollars. In a major conflict, like the one last year with Hamas, Israel used a significant portion of its stockpile of those interceptor missiles. Hezbollah is believed to have about 130,000 rockets, mortars, and missiles, far more than Israel could shoot down using Iron Dome, and that's where the Iron Beam comes in. The cost in electricity for each pulse sent out is only a few dollars, and there's no risk of running out of ammunition. When integrated with the Iron Dome system, the high-energy beam could shoot down thousands of smaller projectiles, leaving the Iron Dome free to attack larger missiles. The one weakness of Iron Beam is that it doesn't work at times of low visibility. However, Israel's planning an airborne version of the system, putting it above the clouds. Mm. Israel originally hoped to have the system fully operational by 2024, but Prime Minister Bennett said he wanted it to become operational this year. Now, it's not yet clear if it'll be fully operational by December, but that's the goal Israel is aiming for. With Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, and Iran all continuing to expand their arsenals, the iron beam system can't come soon enough.
0: We're looking at current events from the Middle East this week here on The Land and the Book in this opening segment out of four. We've got to four total in this program, and we're glad that you're with us. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is a noted Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler, getting ready to head over there this week. Story number three, the Chabad Lubavitch Orthodox Jewish community recently celebrated the 120th birthday of Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. So who is this Rabbi Schneerson, and is he really still alive at the age of 120?
1: Well, John, Rabbi Schneerson is no longer with us. He actually died back in 1994 at the age of 92. But many in the Chabad movement believe he was the Messiah. And before his death, there were signs and posters throughout Israel that said, prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Even now, 28 years after his death, some within the movement still believe he's alive and will return as the Messiah. Hmm. Posters throughout Israel show his picture with the words underneath saying, Long live the King, the Messiah. In an interesting tidbit, Schneerson never actually lived in or visited Israel. He was born in the Ukraine. He lived there. He lived in Berlin and France before escaping to the U.S. back in 1941, and then lived the rest of his life in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, where he took over leadership of this movement following the death of his father back in 1950. His devotion to educating people worldwide and his respect for diversity and inclusiveness and justice provided a strong example for Jews and others, and that's why so many like him. And virtually everything he ever said was recorded, and an astonishing 11,000 hours worth of his teaching has been preserved. Thousands of his followers operate Chabad houses around the world. They present the image of Orthodox Judaism, but with a smiling face and a helping hand. Now, still, you might be asking yourself, why celebrate his 120th birthday if he died 28 years ago? Well, in Orthodox Judaism, uh, 120 years holds special significance because Moses was 120 when he died. Hmm. So a typical greeting in Orthodox communities is the phrase to 120 years. Schneerson was an influential modern rabbi who made a positive mark on Judaism, even beyond the Orthodox communities. And all that's why they were celebrating. But uh, we can make two important observations, John. First, As influential as he was, he's not the Messiah, because Micah 5.2 tells us very specifically where the Messiah had to be born. And second, the idea of a Messiah coming back from the dead is a great idea, but we already know a Messiah who did rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. Well, our final
0: story of the day might, as they say, get us in uh, deep doo-doo. A group of Israeli researchers have studied human feces to discover a bacteria that can avert Heart attacks. So, Charlie, dare I ask, what's the scoop on the poop from Amazing Israel?
1: Well, you know, John, the headline might be humorous, but the story behind it is fascinating. Israeli researchers studied the bacteria balance in the poop of about 200 patients just hours after they experienced a heart attack. Then they compared their bacteria with those of a control group. This is the largest and most in-depth study on the microbiome of heart patients, and it revealed a striking pattern. A particular bacteria present in the control group was missing in most of the heart attack patients. The bacteria is known to prompt the production of molecules that protect the heart, suggesting its presence or absence might directly impact heart health. The researchers believe they might be able to reduce the number of heart attacks by reintroducing the bacteria into a person's gut. They're now working on isolating the bacteria from fecal samples and will then place the bacteria into capsules to give to people whose gut doesn't contain it now by doing so they hope to change the microbiome in the gut to reduce the chances of a heart attack this whole subject might sound somewhat indelicate but there's an interest in the medical community over the possibility of using fecal microbiota transplantation as they call it to reduce heart attacks Clinical trials are expected to start in about a year to assess the pill's effectiveness. And John, all I can say is this is the real scoop on the poop coming from amazing Israel.
0: And I will resist any further attempts at connecting with that humor, Charlie. I will, however, encourage you to encourage listeners to check out our podcast. Many people who hear the radio program are unaware that we also have a podcast. Talk about its benefit and how folks can access that podcast.
1: Well, the real benefit is that people can listen to the program anytime. It's on their schedule when it fits uh, most conveniently for them. Uh, And they can do that by going to the Land in the Book website and just clicking on the Listen Live tab. Coming up,
0: the apostate, a guy who left Islam and paid the price. Islam has no exit door. Indeed, the religion of Allah does not take kindly to those who become, quote, apostates and decide to leave. Doing so may cost you dearly, as you're about to find out. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager. You're about to meet one such apostate. It's a story you'll be telling others. First, though, let's give a thought to new ideas for sharing the love of Christ with the Muslims next door at home, or maybe at work sit down with a Muslim friend for any length of time and it won't be long before the subject of the Crusades comes up. Uncomfortable for Christians or is it an impossible wall to scale? Let's talk about that with Samuel Johnson, who's with Call of Love Ministries. What do you think, Samuel?
2: I think uh, at some point we have to find out how we can answer this question about crusades, even to ourselves, to our children, what happened there. And when I talk with my Muslim friend, I don't uh, go with them. They're going towards religion and politics, combining them together. And I say, no, no, wait a minute here. This is not true Christianity. True Christianity is not a religion. Mm -hmm. It's a person whom I follow. All right. Mm -hmm. And let's look at the person, Jesus. Did he encourage war? Did he expand Christianity using war, using the sword? So, when I tell them about Jesus and that He was against war, they will stay silent because Muhammad expanded Islam through war yeah. all over the Middle East. And then I tell them these people who were part of the Crusade or even you know any other country invaded or anything mm-hmm. like that in the name of religion, these are not true Christ yeah. followers or they understood it in the wrong way.
0: As my friend Ron Hutchcraft says, Jesus never said follow my followers. He said, follow me. Amen. Amen. That's Samia Johnson with Call of Love Ministries. Great resources, by the way, for reaching out to your Muslim friends, available right now at calloflove.org. Mark Christian was raised in Cairo by a father who was not only a fiery imam, but a member of the Egyptian military. He was also intimately associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, a devout Muslim. Mark was teaching by the time he was 12. The Apostate, his book is the story of what happened when he began to question Islam, met Jesus, and ultimately fled Egypt. We're really looking forward to this conversation, so thanks for being with us today. Glad to have you on the program, Mark.
3: Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be with you today and with your listeners.
0: So as a five-year-old, you and your mom, and I think her brother, you went to a theater to see a movie, Strictly Forbidden. Your father found out, and uh, he gave you a good beating. And yet, despite that punishment, you grew to become a spiritual protege of your father, in your words, a confidant. So what led you to question your Islamic faith in the first place?
3: Many years later on, when I was accepted into medical school, and I had a few months to spare, like a gap year, if you say. And uh, during that time, I decided that I would invest all of the time I have on my hand to learn more about Islamic theology, Islamic history, to a different level, that I will answer the question of why Islam is the true religion. And my purpose for that study was actually to take Islam to the masses, to the, those who does not believe in Islam, to surpass my father as a leader, to be a completely different leader who will bring more Muslims to, to the group and to reach out to Christians and Jews and non-religious people altogether to the religion of Islam.
0: So... When did the cracks first appear? You are there with noble intentions from an Islamic perspective, but you found things that made you nervous. What was that?
3: Uh, The fact of the matter is I approached this with uh, great intention to be an advocate for Islam, and it it ended up shaking my own faith and leaving it altogether. The biggest question that I had is, how can I prove Muhammad as a truthful, uh, religious uh, leader and a prophet, and a messenger of Allah, the only one, the best one, the final one, and by Muhammad's own words. And I um, digged into how he answered the the skeptics of his own time. And to my surprise, I start facing the reality that he did have nothing to prove his own prophethood. Hmm. Well,
0: there were further cracks, and those cracks widened. Take us to another point that made you really question your Islamic faith.
3: How Islam spread, how people became Muslims. I start looking at the fact that only 120 people followed Muhammad in the first 10 years of uh, so-called ministry, and then later on, masses start joining Islam. And then I had to find out how this large number of people all of a sudden get convinced by Muhammad. And I found that it has nothing to do with legitimacy. It has nothing to do with um, miracles that Muhammad uh, did because he did absolutely no miracles. And the the biggest uh, reason for people following Islam is the Islamic conquest. And the army was able to go into different nations. So people converted to Islam for two reasons, either out of ambitions to be part of that army so they can gain the power and the privileges to be in the winning party, or others who decided to follow the religion just because they want to uh, live in peace and to not to be harassed or killed or paying money for their own existence.
0: Dr. Mark Christian is a convert who abandoned Islam as an adult and fled his country of birth, Egypt. In the book, you mentioned the role that Dina played in your spiritual journey. Belief.net was one of the tools that God used in your life. Talk about that.
3: During my time after I left Islam, I lived a few years uh, without any faith and kind of lost and broken from inside and dead from inside, even though I was very successful from an earthly perspective. And uh, my wife was trying to help me out, and uh, she found out the internet was brand new at that time. We're not that old, but the internet is new. Uh, from my perspective, and she found that website that uh, take us to uh, some kind of encouraging steps and quotations and so forth that we had no idea that is uh, biblical or uh, has anything to do with Christianity, and later on find out that it is, and that kind of... Uh, you know, uh, led a way to learn more and be curious about what Christianity is all about and what is really Christianity is and how it is different from my beliefs uh, as growing up as a Muslim. You
0: have suggested that this journey of yours away from Islam was rather unsettling for your parents. Talk about that uh, for just a moment.
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, my confrontation with my family started during my questioning time. So when I start questioning I did go to my father, who was my spiritual leader, and when I was reaching out to him, I was reaching out out of desperation, not to confrontation, but that was not received very well, and all of a sudden, I start losing favor uh, one after another, and then later on, I uh, start encountering some serious problems with my family because I became uh, the black sheep of the family and the one who's doubting and a threat to everything that my family represents for the community as a religious leaders and so forth. And and I, I start um, facing lots of problems, uh, losing all my privileges and, and, and some, and uh, became in an open war with my own family, especially with my father.
0: We're talking with Mark Christian, a former Muslim. I'm John Gager. This is The Land and the Book. So there you are in this journey of yours that uh, has has said Islam is not right, Islam is not true, but you hadn't yet found Christ. You're still searching. What was there about Christianity that appealed most to you?
3: The truth. Uh, I'm all about the truth. I'm all about what Christianity is all about. And that was the question that was kind of uh, started the conversation altogether. And uh, one step after another, when you are looking for the truth, you will find Jesus Christ. That's no doubt in my mind. That would be the case. If you are sincerely looking for the truth, you will find Jesus and Jesus will find you. And and that is the thing about Christianity. The ideas of Christianity from the very beginning is very hard to grasp. The idea of uh, forgiveness, grace, love, in faith in Jesus Christ is all about faith. It's completely different, even though it has a work hard on ourselves to cleanse ourselves, to sanctify ourselves, but it's a completely different idea. And those are the God ideas that It is very clear when you start reading the Bible, open your heart and mind to understand God's purpose for us and what Jesus is in our life and in the history of this uh, human race.
0: But Mark, you have to agree that other Muslims have explored somewhat, at least, the claims of Christ, but they never turned their lives over to him. What was the tipping point for you? You can't just say, well, there was this collection of information and I seemed it was true. There was a moment when something absolutely gripped you. What was that moment?
3: I start doubting. I start questioning. I did not like what I was seeing. I tried to reject it as much as I can. I tried to avoid the facts and the real facts that I was facing on a daily basis. I did not say, oh, okay, this is good. This is, I'm going to move on. I'm, I'm not going to be any more Muslim. No, I rejected that. I doubted myself but I continue looking for the truth, diligently looking for the truth. And when I start looking, it's very clear that what I believed in was wrong. Then I was open to get the new, to get the truth, to get the reality. And this is where uh, it made it for me. So eventually
0: you did receive Christ as Savior. And of course, this news uh, eventually reaches your family, your father, your mother. Uh, Your dad in particular is apparently furious at this decision of yours. One day, though, he invited you to meet him at his office. This is after, you know, an ongoing series of very stressful and and distanced relationship kind of stuff. What happened at that moment?
3: Uh, When I was invited, I thought that we're going to have some kind of reconciliation together to meet with him at his office, something that we have done for many, many years, even before we started having this confrontation with each other. But it stopped since the confrontation took place. And I thought I went in in the very early morning of that day with hope that we will find some kind of common ground. And absolutely, there was no common ground. There was death waiting for me and an attempt in my life.
0: So when you walked into that room, uh, you've kind of uh, summarized it rather quickly, Uh, you stumbled on the rug and there was this fireball that exploded. And in shock, you couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, It took you a few seconds to realize that your dad had actually attempted to kill you. That had to have just taken a long time to register and been unthinkable to try and process.
3: Yes, and it took me years that I was not even even to talk about it. And um, it was an experience that shook me to the core uh, that this is maybe what I needed, to be honest with you, to be able to break my last shackle to the enslavement of Islam and to walk into the hands of Jesus Christ. And on that day, on my way to the hospital, this is when I made the decision that finally, I am gonna give in. I'm not gonna continue fighting the truth. I'm gonna accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And this is maybe what I needed.
0: We're talking with Mark Christian, who has converted from Islam as an adult and fled his country of birth, Egypt. That event was enough to send you the message, it's time to leave Egypt. What can you share about your relationship with your father and mother after that event, after years have now passed?
3: As you walk with Jesus, you know, you you start having some change of heart. In the very beginning, maybe bitterness starts fading away and anger starts fading away, but indifference and ignoring the existence was kind of that stage for a while. And when you start understanding where is the suffering from and where is it everything coming from, and it is the devil himself so my dad is or my family or anybody out there is not the problem it is the devil is the problem and i yes. start feeling sorry feeling pity and and so forth and forgiveness and in 2015 i made that phone call to my father and uh, we had a you know a very good heartfelt kind of conversation from my side mainly And that opened the door for a new relationship in a way that is based on phone calls every now and then just to hear each other's voices. Uh, My mother is still having some hard time dealing with all of it. And uh, one of the most sad things about it all is because of all of these problems, I will never see my father again in real life. I will never see my mother again in my real life. I'm not going to see any of my family members in real life because Islam dictates that.
0: Why do these things not get more attention in America, where we are told Islam is a religion of peace?
3: The fact of the matter is, it is a verse in the Quran that says that whoever fight Muhammad or Allah is going to be suffering lots of punishment that is mentioned in that verse. I see that America is abiding with that verse in a big time. America is wide open to attack Christianity and attack Jesus and attack the Christians and attack the church. And... And discredit any of the christian faith tenants and and to try to do its best to say anything they want about christianity whether it's good or bad but when it comes to islam i think the united states of america today and for the last maybe 12 years is abiding closely to the sharia law and to the islamic uh, verse of the quran the islamic textbook that you should not ever offend allah or muhammad
0: how would you like listeners to respond to your story
3: I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. I want people to learn from my story. And my main purpose of all of that stuff is to basically educate people so they can be more equipped to be better ministers uh, and better friends to Muslims across and to be able to ask the right questions, understand Islam. I look at every Muslim the same way Jesus would look at them with a teary eye and a broken heart, hoping and praying for all of them to find the truth and to find freedom in Jesus Christ
0: and that's a great way to land this conversation. I love your heart. That's Mark Christian, who's written The Apostate, a link to the book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer is back in our next segment, and I think you'll love the questions we address, so stick around for more of The Land and the Book. Thanks for sticking around. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and here on segment three, we love addressing questions. Your questions as you read a passage of Scripture, as you do a Bible study, as you wrestle with something, maybe that the Holy Spirit Himself has implanted in your mind to think about. Well, this is the forum where we give some space to all of that. And your question, by the way, welcome anytime at The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Did you know that most Jewish people? have never heard the gospel. And each week we talk about Israel
1: and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. Life in Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Now, Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners— it's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. All right, let's get right to our stack of questions today. It's
0: never a small stack, Charlie. It's always a a big stack. People are curious, aren't they?
1: Uh, They're always coming in, but
0: that's great. (laughs) This one from John, who takes us to Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. Moses strikes the rock rather than speaking to the rock as he was commanded. As a result, he is barred from entering the promised land. And God says, the reason is, you did not regard me as holy. That actually seems quite terrifying. It's possible to serve God faithfully for many years, be used of him mightily, and still mess up in a way that has enormous personal implications. But that to me seems so sobering, it's almost to the point of fear. Your thoughts, Charlie?
1: It does, John. And I actually see two New Testament passages that in some ways parallel what happened to Moses. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul compared serving Christ to running in an athletic competition. And he says, we need to run, not just run, but run in a way to get the prize. And then he added, uh, he doesn't want to run like someone who's just uh, purposeless in what he's doing. He says, uh, I beat my body. I make it a slave so that after I preach to others, I myself might not be disqualified for the prize. We all focus on getting the prize. Paul was saying the importance is not to be disqualified. Yeah, uh, He was concerned about that. And the second passage is James 3.1, where James cautioned his readers about cavalierly assuming positions of leadership, especially when teaching the word of God. And he said, Not many should presume to be teachers, knowing that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Moses was the ultimate teacher, and God held him to a higher standard. And all that to say, I think too many today don't understand the holiness of God and the importance of the fear of the Lord. Yet we make God our buddy, our best friend, look forward to giving Jesus a high five when we see him in heaven. But the response I see in the Bible to those who come face to face with the Lord is reverential fear and awe that reveals their sinfulness, then there's the fact that they're in the presence of God, who's all holy. Uh, You know, a little holy fear and awe when it comes to God really would go a long way toward developing, I think, biblical wisdom. Jim has emailed his question. He says, I was looking at the Moody Atlas,
0: and their map of modern Jerusalem locates Mount Zion outside the southwest quarter of the city, south of the Armenian quarter. That would suggest that Jebus, or Salem, was not actually built on Mount Zion. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, This is one of those quirks of modern Jerusalem. Uh, the western hill, which is called the southwestern hill in that particular atlas, uh, didn't become part of Jerusalem until the time of King Hezekiah. It was the largest and highest of the three hills that eventually became part of the city, but the term Mount Zion was in use long before that hill was actually part of Jerusalem. Uh, so sometime after the close of the New Testament, probably in the Middle Ages, the name Mount Zion migrated from the original city over to the western hill. So Today, if you want to go see the Citadel of David, you go to the Western Hill, but that was built by Herod the Great. If you want to go to the Tomb of David, well, it's actually on the Western Hill as well, uh, which uh, is the wrong place because David was buried in his original city. Uh, So if you want to go to the actual spot where David's palace and tomb were located, well, you visit the small spur of land outside the current old city walls on the southeast side of the city. But if you jump into a cab and tell the driver to take you to Mount Zion— You'll end up at Jaffa Gate on the west side of the western hill, and that's what makes Jerusalem today so confusing.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're welcoming your Bible questions, like this one from Zulma, who says, Pentecostals believe and preach that a person is only baptized in the Holy Spirit when someone speaks in other tongues. I'm Pentecostal, but don't believe so. I believe that to be filled with the Spirit of God when we accept Christ is the same as having been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Please provide me with some biblical verses. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I actually see two passages that I believe can answer that question, and both are found in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul spends a great deal of time there discussing spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues. Uh, The first of the passages is verse 13. He says, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, he's saying that all the Corinthian believers had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, a little bit later, by the way, when Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, "Uh, you're controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. In other words, if someone hasn't received the indwelling Holy Spirit, which Christ has promised to send, that person isn't even a Christian. So the work of the Holy Spirit in indwelling and baptizing believers into the body of Christ is a work that takes place at the time of salvation. But on that second passage in 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verses 29 to 30. You know, there Paul asks a series of questions about spiritual gifts. And he asks them in a way that demands a negative answer. The New American Standard Bible translates it this way. Paul says, all are not apostles, are they? No. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. All do not have the gift of healing, do they? No. All do not speak with tongues, do they? In other words, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul specifically says, All believers were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, but not all believers were given the gift of speaking in tongues. The baptism and indwelling of the Spirit are an essential part of our salvation experience since someone who hasn't been baptized into the body of Christ and who doesn't have the indwelling spirit doesn't belong to Christ but even in Paul's day not everyone who'd been baptized by the spirit spoke in tongues. Dave takes us to 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles
0: chapter 9 where we read that Solomon brought in a lot of gold and silver was as common as stones. Did all of this increased wealth in Solomon's time cause inflation? Can inflation be good for everyone? It seems by the end of Solomon's reign, people were complaining about high taxes. Why were taxes so high if so much wealth was coming in?
1: Well, I think the key to the verses uh, relate to the understanding of what was happening in Solomon's day, and it was an agrarian society. In First Kings 9 and 10, Solomon's wealth came through tariffs that he imposed on the rebuilding of several main towns along the International Highway, He basically put up toll booths on the international highway and charged for people traveling through. He made trade agreements uh, where he would trade grain and olive oil for other luxury items with other countries. Uh, He had treaties with other nations like the Queen of Sheba and Hiram, King of Tyre. And then he imposed tribute and taxes on vassal states and on the people of Israel. So the wealth that came into Israel didn't find its way into the pockets of the average Israelite. They experienced peace, and it was a time when they lived without fear of natural or man-made disasters, But it was also a time of heavy taxation, which probably came in the form of part of their grain, their olive oil, whatever they produced, had to go to the government. In 1 Kings 5, Solomon also required many of the adult men to spend one month each year serving as a laborer for the king. So the average person had little in terms of excess funds to spend. Uh, The wealth Solomon amassed was spent on major projects. Uh, 1 Kings 9.15 gives a list of all of the places in Jerusalem he built and all the cities that he built as well. He also supported all the laborers and the administrative structure he set up to control everything. That added another layer of government bureaucracy and expenses and, of course, taxes. We all understand that. In fact, I love what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5.11 uh, when he said, uh, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Anyway, all that to say, Uh, My best guess is there wasn't a great deal of inflation in Solomon's day, uh, even though the Bible suggests the relative value of silver and gold and cedar wood was diminished because of the abundance of it that was brought into the royal treasuries. But the average person, uh, he didn't see any of that wealth. Instead, they saw the extra taxes needed to run the government, eating into whatever extra wheat and olive oil they might have produced. And sadly, much of what Solomon amassed ended up being taken away by the pharaoh of Egypt, during the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam.
0: Well, two quick comments as we uh, leave this segment to you. Number one, be sure you're taking advantage of our podcast. It's a great resource, allows you to listen to the program whenever you want, wherever you want. It's available through the Moody Radio app, which is a free download. Just search for Moody Radio at your favorite app store. The other thing, could we impose on you to let the folks at this station know that you listen to and appreciate The Land and the Book? There are a lot of people knocking at the door. They'd love to be on the air. So thank them for The Land and the Book. Charlie's back with his devotional next on The Land and the Book. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? Well, coming up on the land and the book, our fearless guide and well-equipped leader, wearing some nice boots there I see, is about to take us on the first of seven mountain climbs. Yeah, Charlie Dyer's got a thing for mountains, and you know that if you've traveled with him in Israel. We're going to get to that right after this perspective from someone who's also been to the Holy Land.
2: Hi, my name is Kathy and I was very surprised that in Israel some people need to be called to worship, others pray at a wall where we can reach God anytime we need to.
1: My name is Brent Slater and I'm uh, just absolutely thrilled to be here in the Holy Land. I've studied the Bible and taught it for over 30 years, but for me the powerful experience was to be up in Galilee seeing two things, the mountains where Jesus would go to be alone, so solitary and the compact cities like Capernaum, where he was totally surrounded by people, caring for people, and totally alone with his father. I'll never forget that.
2: Hi, my name's Lisa Carlton, and I'm from Florida, and I'm amazed at the land and uh, the wonderful sights that we see in Israel and how it makes the Bible come alive, and I'd love to come back again.
0: You know, isn't it interesting, week after week, as we enjoy these Holy Land experience testimonies, to To see the way a trip to Israel affects everybody so very, very differently. Uh, We're all on a different path on our spiritual journey, so it's neat to see the way uh, God gives us a sliver of light, uh, a lesson, uh, an impression, whatever it might be, that we take with us forever. Well, Charlie, we're uh, speaking of impressions, looking at a visual vista ahead in today's devotional, but I have to ask, why are we, uh, you in particular,
1: strapping on those heavy duty mountain climbing boots? Uh, we are ready to climb several mountains in Israel over the next several weeks, and uh, this week we're going to climb with Abraham to the top of Mount Moriah. All right, I'll get my bottle of water here and join you. <laughs> Many Christians have had mountaintop experiences at some point in their lives. A, a mountaintop experience is a spiritual and emotional encounter with God, a moment when everything clicks and we gain 2020 insight into God, His purpose, and His power in our lives. What I want to do over the next seven weeks is experience some of the Bible's mountaintop experiences, literally. We'll follow some of the men and women of the Bible as they encounter God in unique ways on the mountains of Israel. Today's mountaintop experience begins in the southern part of the land in Beersheba. Uh, But as we arrive at a nearby tent, we don't see any significant mountains nearby. We do, however, see Abraham. The patriarch celebrated his 100th birthday several years ago and God gave him the greatest present he could ever imagine, a son born to his aged wife, Sarah. After that amazing birth, life had settled down into a familiar, predictable routine. Abraham dug a well for water, planted a tamarisk tree for shade, and settled into the life of a faithful follower of Yahweh El Olam, the Lord, the Eternal God. But all that changed shortly before our arrival. It's interesting how God has a way of disrupting routine and forcing us out of our predictable lifestyle. In Abraham's case, it came with a direct command from God. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. Abraham, travel into the heart of the hill country while leaving the rest of your family and possessions behind. The command was strange but doable. And Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. But Lord, he's all I have left. He's the only hope, the thin thread that binds me to the promises you made to me. But whatever doubts or fears Abraham might have had, he obeyed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. It took three days to walk the sixty odd miles from Beersheba to Moriah. Three days of quiet contemplation. Three days of unspoken and unanswered questions. Abraham knew the way to Mount Moriah. He'd been to the area before. After rescuing his nephew Lot out of the hands of invading forces from the east, after that daring rescue, Abraham stopped at the city of Salem to meet Melchizedek, the king-priest who ultimately came to typify Jesus. The summit of Mount Moriah stood about a third of a mile north of the city. We're not told if Abraham stopped at Salem on this journey with his son Isaac, and I suspect he didn't. He hadn't traveled here to call on Melchizedek, but to obey a direct command from God most high, the God he and Melchizedek both worshipped. The Bible tells us what happened next. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now put yourself in Abraham's place. God is asking you to part with the one thing you hold most dear and most precious. This must have been a heart-pounding moment for that aged patriarch. How could Abraham reconcile God's command to slay Isaac with God's promise just one chapter earlier that, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named? Isaac was still just a young lad. He hadn't married. He had no children. If he were to die now, how could that promise be fulfilled? The book of Genesis doesn't give us the answer, but the book of Hebrews does. In Hebrews 11, a chapter that takes us on a tour of God's hall of faith, we learn how Abraham resolved this tension. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Remember, this event took place before the resurrection of Jesus before the raising of Lazarus, before the other events in the Bible where a person was raised back to life. Nothing like that had ever happened before. Yet Abraham believed God's promise that Isaac would be the one through whom Abraham's promised line would descend. And if Isaac were about to die, then the only way God could keep his promise would be to somehow raise Isaac back to life. And it was that unshakable trust in God that allowed Abraham to raise the knife in obedience to God's command. Abraham's mountaintop experience was the supreme test of his trust in God and his willingness to obey God, and he passed with flying colors. At that very moment, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The test having ended, God provided a ram for Abraham to offer in place of Isaac. I'm sure some of you are struggling with one aspect of this story. Would God indeed ask someone to sacrifice his own son? Well, we first need to remember that God didn't let Abraham sacrifice Isaac. Instead, God provided a substitute. God was testing Abraham to see if his love for Isaac was greater than his love for God. And second, we need to remember that our God did sacrifice his son on a cross just outside Jerusalem, and he did so because it was the only way to provide forgiveness for our sin. But what lesson can we take from this mountaintop experience with Abraham? I think it's the realization that sometimes God does test us by asking us to give up that which we hold in great value. It can be our comfortable way of life or our possessions or even someone we love very deeply. We might not understand why God is asking us to let go. And sometimes the process of prying our fingers loose can even be painful. But such mountaintop experiences are a necessary part of learning how to trust a God who loves us so much, he was willing to part with his own son for our sake. Hmm. Very meaningful. And
0: Charlie, again, I just feel like I'm right there in Israel. I bet you do too, as you listen to The Land and the Book. You can hear it all again, by the way, at our website, thelandandthebook.org. TheLandAndTheBook.org, Great way to find out about uh, today's guest, future guests, and uh, share us with a friend. Also at the website, your opportunity to find out about Charlie Dyer's latest books. I've got a book there as well. Check it out, TheLandAndTheBook.org. Click on the books tab and uh, learn all that's there for you. If you've been to our Facebook page lately, It's a great online community, pitching in, chipping in, sharing their thoughts. Stories, we've got them, photos, articles, news tidbits, and more. The Facebook page is available first by heading to thelandandthebook.org and then clicking on that Facebook icon, thelandandthebook.org, and click on the Facebook icon. You know, as always, we do encourage you to let the management at this station know of your appreciation for the program. They've got so many people lining up with content, a lot of it really good stuff, and yet... We're honored to be on this station, honored to be here. And that's at the, the grace and the invitation of this station. So why not send them an email or a good old-fashioned card in the mail? Say thank you for the land of the book. We'd appreciate that. The land of the book comes to you as a team. And that team is made up of people like Dr. Charlie Dyer, of course, our host, at least expert and author. Dan Anderson, our producer. I'm John Gager. Love to see you back next week here on The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.